You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Good afternoon, everybody. Glad to have you with us. Um, I'm here today, and Evan will be back tomorrow. Yom Kippur, he is off, and of course, tomorrow will be his final show. And we're very sad about that. Um, I don't know, a lot has been said about Evan over the last couple of days, and he's probably, okay, enough already. Well, maybe he's not. <laughs> I, um, for those who don't know, I'm in Ottawa and Evan's based in Ottawa. And when he joined CTV and Bell Media, he took over a local show in the afternoon here um, and was just like an absolute tornado in a good way through the organization, both television and radio. It was only a matter of time before he went to network, which happened. Um, and of course, uh, he had a massive impact there as well. We are thrilled for him. And, uh, sorry, he's going because, um, anybody who works with him, uh, beside him on the same team, it doesn't matter who you are. It is, um, he brings people together in a way that is just extraordinary and he knows everybody and everything and the stuff he doesn't know, he's very, very curious about. So we are going to miss him terribly. He is still going to be a special correspondent with CTV news, but we are excited for him on this new chapter and he will Uh, be here tomorrow to say goodbye to all of you. He loves doing this show. He loves doing radio. And uh, video didn't kill the radio star. The internet didn't kill television. Um, Everything is changing and morphing, but um, Evan will be a force no matter what he does. And I am thrilled to be here um, for today. Uh, Boy, I don't know about you. I was really taken aback yesterday by Hockey Canada on this show we dropped in on that hearing live and I was just struck by the tone. Um, Andrea Skinner, the board chair who's appointed in the midst of this scandal, going at it, hammer and tong, right back at all the politicians, uh, essentially saying things like, you know, this is not a uniquely hockey Canada problem. It's everywhere. And essentially suggesting politicians are, accused of sexual assault too. It it just, it was a very aggressive tone. And the problem for Hockey Canada, of course, is that, uh, you know, it's like pulling teeth trying to get information about how they made payments to settle these sexual assault, this sexual assault case. They didn't actually reveal it to anybody. It came out through Rick, Rick Westhead's work. He's going to join us later in the program. And then Skinner went on to suggest that if you fire everybody at Hockey Canada, maybe the lights won't go on at rinks. It'll jeopardize your children's hockey, which really is quite something to say. (laughs) Quite something to say. It caught the attention of the Prime Minister and many members of uh, the panel, of course. Here's Justin Trudeau this morning. He was asked about this situation. Here's the Prime Minister. It boggles the mind uh, that Hockey Canada is continuing to dig in its heels. Uh, Parents across the country are losing faith or have lost faith in Hockey Canada. Certainly uh, politicians here in Ottawa have lost faith in Hockey Canada. So there he is again, and we'll listen to him one more time. He had more to say about this when he was asked today about it. Here's Justin Trudeau again on Hockey Canada. I really hope they understand because... 
hockey is a really important sport to a lot of Canadians and a lot of kids. Uh, and right now, this mess is doing no favors to kids across the country. So, if you, again, listen to Hockey Canada, their argument is essentially, we are fixing this. We have, we, we are changing the culture. We have re-engaged independent investigations, even though one was already closed and apparently finished after the settlement. And, and London police have woken up again, I guess. And now they're doing another investigation, a criminal investigation, despite the first criminal investigation that said no charges will be laid. And and, and now, and I guess Hockey Canada's argument is that you, you can't just you can't just fire everybody. And one of the politicians yesterday pointed out, um, nothing's happened to the players. You know, when you raise the politician, well, it seems like Hockey Canada was raising Don Meredith the former senator. I mean, he was kicked out of the caucus. He had to resign from the Senate and now he's facing criminal charges for events that happened allegedly in 2013-2014. So like there, there there appears to be this 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 disconnect. And the other thing too that struck me about the panel and about the response to the panel it was how coached and um I don't want to say aggressive because that would be too strong, but how strident and um, defiant Hockey Canada was. I, I don't know what I was expecting to hear. I certainly wasn't expecting to hear that. Let's one more one more clip from Justin Trudeau and then the minister responsible. Let's hear one more on Hockey Canada. It's no surprise uh, that provincial organizations are questioning whether or not they want to continue supporting an organization that doesn't understand uh, how serious a situation it has contributed to causing. Quebec this morning saying it is breaking away from Hockey Canada. So Quebec's, uh, I don't know if you've checked the map and the population, that's a fairly significant (laughs) chunk of hockey players that are basically saying our provincial group no longer has faith. And you know other provinces are doing the same thing. That's how badly it's going. So let's run this through. They've lost millions in sponsorship. They have been exposed trying to essentially settle sexual assault lawsuits with parents' money, partially. That's, that's, a, that's a fact. Um, there is now a second fund that has been revealed that they say is just an administrative thing, but it's it, it exists possibly for the same reason, again, not disclosed. And we have essentially heard of, at the highest level of the game, two allegations of group sexual assault. And they say that this is, uh, everything's fine here, let's just move on. I mean... In fairness, they, they, they're saying we're, we're fixing it. We're doing things to fix the culture, to fix hockey. Let us do these things. And, and the question from the politicians, of course, is how is it that you can do that when, in fact, you oversaw it and um, you, you, you essentially wanted this to just go away? Again, I point out the local case here. I believe the Globe and Mail highlighted it. Neil Doof well-known case where he was injured, young hockey player, years ago. He was in line to go to Princeton, an excellent top-level hockey player, and he got injured. And 
he has a dispute with Hockey Canada over compensation for his injury, which is exactly the kind of thing that these funds are set up to do. That happened years ago, and they're still arguing about what the appropriate amount is, unless I've missed it. I think I don't think they've settled. They settled this London allegation inside two to three weeks. Anthony Housefather, the Liberal MP, who's a former, who's who's a, a lawyer and has a background in this kind of law, insurance law, said, "Let me get this straight. You settled this without knowing all the facts. You settled this without minutes inside the board meeting. Like that's not that's not." Corporations don't do that. You you have to, like, okay, if we're going to pay X amount of dollars, what exactly happened here? Are we sure it's a fact? What are our, what's our exposure here if we do this? You know, if, if this, if this particular case is settled in this particular way, what are our other vulnerabilities out there? And Hockey Canada basically says, we, we have no documentation to back up anything we did. We just did it. And we did it because we wanted to be victim-centered and make sure that the victim was okay. You'll excuse a lot of people who roll their eyes at that and say, this all looks like you were just trying to sweep it under the rug and hope it went away. And it didn't. It didn't. We will speak with uh, TSN's main reporter on this later on in the show, of course. That's Rick Westhead the senior correspondent. We'll also have our panel. I'm Graham Richardson. In for Evan Solomon. Stay with us. It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. Um, there's been a change recently kicking in October 6th. Uh, Canadian businesses can now charge credit card fees back to the customer directly. That is the change. And um, I'm wondering if that has been the case for a while for some businesses, like whether they pass those fees on to customers already or whether they can or whether this actually significantly changes things. Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and joins us on the line. Uh, hi, Dan. How are you? Good to be with you. Um, tell me about this, because these fees people don't often see. Uh, businesses know all about them. They can be significant, correct? They're huge. Uh, Canadians pay among the highest credit card processing fees in the entire world. Mm. Uh, but they don't know that because they're often in, they're, they're right now embedded in the costs of everything that we buy. Merchants pay on average in Canada between one and a half to two and a half percent of the sale, uh, for the courtesy of using, for accepting a credit card. So if you're buying a good for a hundred dollars, uh, you might, you might, the merchant would be, you know, a dollar and a half or two and a half bucks to, uh, to make that transaction happen. Uh, that adds up to five to seven billion dollars a year in credit card processing fees for Canadians. What is a normal or what is a more reasonable credit card processing fee other countries charge? Well, in, in Europe, these fees are actually capped at about uh, 0.3 of 1%, whereas we pay uh, four or five times that in Canada. Mm. So it is significantly higher in Canada, higher still in the United States. Uh, fees, to be fair, have actually dropped a little bit 
But we have to remember that the, through the pandemic, more of us paid for, for our goods and services with credit cards than with cash or, or, or other forms of payment. And as a result, the total amount of our sales that are credit card based, that's just way higher than before. And as a result, merchants are paying even more. Did you say the American rate was higher than ours? They are, yeah. The, mm. in, in the U.S., this is even higher. The government has stepped in and is making some changes. I, I will add, as, you know, the, the, the federal liberals did promise in the 2019 election campaign to lower these credit card processing fees, working with merchants to do that. Uh, they promised it again in the 2021 budget. They promised it again in the 2022 budget. We've seen zero action out of Ottawa on this. Is this the bank lobby? Who's or or the credit card lobby? Like who who's getting this? Like why would? It, well, you raise a good point. The the biggest beneficiaries of these fees are in fact the banks. Of course. Uh, yes, Visa and Mastercard take a slice, but actually, if you if you use a CIBC Visa card, it's CIBC that gets the largest chunk of this revenue, and that is you know about ninety percent of the merchant fee goes to the banks that issue the cards. It's the credit card processors, Visa, Mastercard that also get a slice. Uh, but the majority of the money goes to the banks. Hmm. And like, and if you're carrying a balance, they get that money too from the oh, customer. Yeah, there's, like, there's fees as far as the eye can see. You uh, you might pay you might pay 150 dollars to the bank just to get the card the card in the first place uh, as an application fee. You pay if you carry an interest balance fees for that, uh, and and of course then the merchant pays every time the card is used. Uh, pays a, a fairly significant chunk of that. And and so, you know, look, there are a f- limited number of circumstances where these fees are already a separate surcharge. If you go into a cab in Ottawa, for example, uh, and you pay with your credit card, they do add, I think, a $1.50 service fee for that. That's mm-hmm. allowed by municipal ordinance. Uh, but merchants, through their agreements with the industry, have not been permitted in general terms to add the surcharge until tomorrow. Hmm. Hmm. And will it cover, will people see it right away? Are businesses going to do this? What about my notion that they've already built that into their costs without saying it? Yeah, well, look, they they have. There's no question that these fees are already embedded in the cost of everything we pay. Uh, but uh, right now, merchants are are considering whether to use this new power. And that's not an easy, consider, uh, an easy thing for them to think about. Uh, this power has existed in the United States, but you would, you know, for those that travel regularly to the U.S. like I do, you rarely see it. Uh, most, most merchants are saying, gosh, it takes a lot to get you into my store or on mm-hmm. my website. It takes even more to get you to make a purchase. Am I going to want to risk frustrating you at the very final second and then you abandon your cart or leave the store only to go down the road to a competitor. So a competition is our best protection against these fees being overused. Mm. Most merchants have told us that they're they're not likely to use this in the early days unless the competition goes in that direction. But about 20% said that they will. Uh, so about 20% of merchants in a recent survey of, of CFIB members say that they're actively considering adding a surcharge to try to address this this significant cost. Retail, probably a little less likely. Hospitality, a little less likely. More likely to see that if you're paying your dentist or you're buying an airline ticket or you're perhaps uh, paying your utility bill or your insurance bill on your credit card. That's where you're probably where you're going to be more likely to see this over time. It's not going to be a switch that will be flipped tomorrow. 
there's some permissions that are necessary. So I suspect it'll be likely you'll start to see this early in 2023 in mm. limited in limited markets. And Dan, just probably, what what changed? What law changed, uh, or was it just an agreement that came into force? So it, it, there's no law that prohibits surcharging. The, the prohibition has been from Visa and MasterCard that you as a merchant could lose your power ah. to accept credit cards okay. if, if, you, if you chose to use this power. And the reason that Visa and MasterCard relented is because they were facing a class action lawsuit uh, for anti-competitive behaviors. Uh, and as a result of the, that lawsuit was settled out of court, there was uh, money that was returned to merchants, uh, a small amount of money returned to merchants through this uh, through this class action suit. And most importantly, the power to surcharge was added. Uh, and we'll go, this was about four years ago, but the power is finally, years and years later, finally going to hit Canadian the Canadian market. It's been in the U.S. now for a few years. And as you say... That point of purchase is so critical, especially with costs going up everywhere. I can't imagine a lot of people jumping to do this, but at the same time, all of their costs have gone up. And it's like one of these things where, you know what, I maybe I can't eat that percentage every single transaction anymore because it's it's enough to tilt, tip the balance. You got it. I mean, right now, coming out of the pandemic, if you can believe it, only 40% of small businesses say that their sales have returned to normal. Mm. Um, they have a mountain of COVID-related debt, $160,000 on average a small business has taken on just to survive, and the cost of every line of their budget has risen dramatically. Most businesses are losing money every day that they are open right now. Uh, and so while these fees may be embedded notionally in the costs that they're, <laughs> the, co- the, the prices that they charge, uh, they're not making any money, and so this this may be viewed as a as one way to try to close that gap ever so slightly. I suspect, though, that some merchants will use this selectively. So, for example, if you use your Plain Jane credit card, uh, the fees may be viewed as reasonable. But if you pay with your high end Visa that gives you a whole swack of travel points, then the merchant might say, for that type of transaction, I will add a small surcharge. I'll also add that, you know, because they're embedded in the cost of what we pay for everybody, the the senior on a fixed income that pays with their debit card or pays cash for their goods, they're actually subsidizing the wealthy consumer's free trip to France uh, because they're able, they have the income to be able to command a, a premium credit card with rewards points. So this is a, you know, this, this, this would make it more fair. Those that are benefiting from the free points we have to remember those points are not free. They're right now paid by merchants and consumers in what they buy. We will continue to watch it. Dan Kelly, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Thanks for joining us. Anytime. All right. You just got to, um, and you know, I don't know, when he said that about post-pandemic, how much we become reliant on credit cards and how more of our spending, like what I usually try to do, sometimes successfully, is use debit as much as I can. Uh, you know, in my day-to-day transactions, whether it's gas, whether it's whatever, you know, we've, we've got one of these credit cards that, that has a, you know, the points on it and everything like that. And I know people who load it up with points and that sort of thing, but over the pandemic, you know, whether it's Amazon, whether it's all this online buying, we, we have used our credit cards in ways we'd never used them before. So I, and I don't think, I know I'm not alone. According to Dan Kelly, I'm not alone. When we come back, We're going to talk about stolen cars and the epidemic that is hitting Canada. Stay with us.
This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back, everybody. Glad to have have you with us. Uh, You know, anecdotally, uh, two parts of the province, uh, one in my neighborhood, one in another friend who I've just spoken with last night, car's gone. Three o'clock in the morning in one case, right off the driveway in front of his house, big truck, gone. Uh, Another one, same kind of a situation, different cities. And if you think it's happening more and more, and it seems to be happening more and more, uh, you're, you're not imagining things. It really is. It is quite something. Um, Inspector Rich Harris with the Toronto Police yesterday was talking about carjackings in the Toronto area. Here's some of what he had to say. As you know, Toronto, we continue to experience a concerning increase in carjackings. But these robberies are not only happening in our city, but are also taking place across the GTA. Mitch Marner, obviously famously after the playoffs last year, carjacked in West End Toronto. Well-known uh, uh, story there. Uh, but it's not just carjackings. It's, it's thefts in general. Um, joining us now is Kerry Schmidt with the Ontario Provincial Police, uh, Sergeant Kerry Smith. Sergeant Schmidt, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. What, what is it? Like, this, this is not just anecdote. The stats are backing this up. This appears to be a wave of car thefts, certainly around Ontario and in other parts of the country as well. Yeah, we are still seeing this, uh, you know, very uh, aggressively in terms of the number of vehicles being stolen right from underneath uh, our noses, essentially, on the driveways. Even with security cameras watching, uh, we see this over and over again. I was speaking to some of our investigators here who uh, are also uh, alarmed by this uh, number of of vehicles. We think, you know, our modern vehicles with key fobs and built-in security systems and alarms are going to prevent this from happening uh, but the thieves are becoming very clever so how are they doing it and and what can people do to protect themselves well, absolutely. And it's about protecting yourself. You, know, you you wake up in the morning and you go to start your car and get in your car and it's gone. Uh, you know, take, re- not responsibility, but obviously take, uh, you know, maybe different initiatives in terms of how can you make your vehicle less of a, um, a target uh, or an opportunity for thieves. You know, in the garage, out of sight, uh, parked uh, in front of uh, other vehicles, you know, not to, not to put one vehicle over another. You know, simple things. When I talk to investigators, even the old school style of putting a steering wheel uh, lock on your vehicle. The club. The club. Put it on your vehicle. You know, you may think that's, uh, you know, not necessary with anti-theft, but uh, we are watching thieves with security cameras uh, through our uh, surveillance and the security cameras, watching these thieves come into a modern, expensive vehicle without a key. They're not uh, putting the coat hanger down the window and jamming it open and touching the wires like they do in the movies. They are getting in through electronics and they are able to actually steal your car sometimes without even scanning the uh the key fob that might be hanging on your uh on your name on the door just inside the house they can do it without that so you know be very uh, aware of uh, what you can do you may think putting your key fob you know upstairs in a lead line box is going to prevent it well that may help in one type of theft but in other times uh thieves don't even care they are targeting vehicles they may put tracking devices on your vehicle if you go out shopping and all of a sudden they know where you live they're going to follow you back and one night uh, you're going to wake up and your car is going to be gone so uh, you know there are things that you can do but uh, in terms of tracking devices and so on but that just alerts you to maybe where the vehicle is and and i'm telling you within 
minutes or hours, that vehicle can be uh, boxed up and in a container or, um, you know, revend and sent off somewhere else waiting uh, for the next uh, customer and you've lost your car. How, how are they able to do that? Like, I, this is where I, I just, I, I'm just in awe of this. Yeah. Like, it, it seems to me you can't just put a car in a container and stick it on a ship and send it overseas. Like, this is a very sophisticated theft ring or rings that are operating with this many cars going. Yeah, no, this, I would say that this is very organized. There are uh, people involved in this that have uh, significant technological skills and abilities. Uh, you know, I don't know what kind of, uh, you know, intelligence they're getting or, or who's helping them along the way. Mm. But we have seen these happening with the, uh, with people coming up to a car, looking at the back, looking underneath, you know, checking, doing a few checks on it, and they come back an hour later, and the key, the vehicle will unlock as they're approaching because they have now programmed uh, a fob to unlock the doors. And, and it's, it's not just uh, super high, expensive exotic cars. It's uh, any type of vehicles, uh, pickup trucks, like you're saying your neighbor or friend had mm-hmm. their, their truck stolen. So, you know, it is, it is anything and everything, and uh, from all brands and manufacturers that, uh, that thieves are targeting. So, again, you know, be very vigilant in your, uh, your methods of securing your vehicle. Like I was saying, a club in the garage, out of sight, you know, putting different deterrents uh, in, on, your, on your property, that will alert them. And, again, if anyone sees someone walking suspiciously, yeah, in your neighborhood or, or floating around someone else's vehicle, maybe go knock on that person's door and say, listen, I just saw someone at your at your car. Uh, was that your neighbor? Or like we, we see people looking for loose change, but they're also looking to take that car with them. So mm. uh, yeah, it is a significant issue we are dealing with. Insurance companies are, are forking over uh, dollars because of that. And, uh, you know, it, it affects every one of us who uh, has car insurance premiums uh, to pay for because, uh, you know, these vehicles are being uh, stolen. Uh, and friends of mine have had their vehicles stolen right from uh, their driveway as well. And it is extremely frustrating and, and violating uh, to, to have that feeling, knowing that someone's uh, going through your property. It, you could, if you have two cars, parking one in front of the more valuable one might cause them a few seconds and might cause them to move on. But then you think, well, well maybe they'll take the other one too. I don't know. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, and so, and that's why just the. Uh, doing whatever you can environmentally on your driveway, in your garage. So many people have their garage full of uh, bicycles and lawnmowers, and yet the most ex- most expensive thing that you own outside of your home is your car that's sitting on a driveway waiting uh, for the next seat to come around. So, you know, I, I don't know what to tell people. It is it is a challenge, and we're, we are investigating. We get calls about this all the time, but uh, thieves know it's not like, you know, the movies where they steal the car and they're driving like maniacs. Uh, they blend in with traffic because no one's even reported that vehicle stolen until uh, you wake up in the morning. And by the time uh, you realize it, it could be uh, hundreds of uh, kilometers away or locked up tight someplace mm-hmm. that uh, we'll never be able to find it. Before I let you go, we're getting a text. We got one from um, London, uh, Graham in London. Uh, My fobs are kept in a Faraday pouch always unless I'm driving. That can help, but you're saying that that, that they are mimicking fobs now to the point where that that doesn't necessarily give you 100% protection. 
that's one part of the solution, but there are certainly other uh, methods that thieves are using that don't require a scan of uh, that key fob. So, you know, that may prevent, uh, you know, a certain percentage of, of thieves, but, you know, don't think that that is going to be the catch-all that's going to keep your vehicle uh, safe and secure. So, uh, again, there's a lot of uh, ways that you can uh, continue to uh, help yourself. Uh, certainly do that. I'm not dis- dis- uh, dissing that the method. That's great. But uh, also keep in mind that may not prevent other thieves from finding other methods of taking your car. Sergeant uh, Kerry Schmidt from the Ontario Provincial Police. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Uh, keep your texts coming. Seven ten ten. We'll read some of them throughout the program. I'm hearing this all over the place. People just getting their cars stolen, lifted uh, right out from under their noses. And then, and then, you know, the headaches of insurance. The other thing too, a friend of mine, uh, the interest rate, right? So he got this car and he financed it a few months ago uh, before interest rates started going up and that's all changed. (laughs) You know, the interest rate's gone up. And so he had his car stolen and the new payment to the, uh, the replacement car, 400 bucks more a month. Like, you know, geez. Anyway, I think I'm going to get a club. I think I'm going to do it. My, Members of my family have clubs. I'm like, what is this, 1987? You know what? I'm going to get a club and crank my 80s music. Hey, stick it on the floor. It's 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 a bar. But but then people say, well, they'll cut through the club as well. Seven ten ten. Text me. They'll cut through the club as well. But if it takes them, it takes them a little bit of time to cut through the club. Maybe they'll move on to my friendly neighbor. I hope they don't do that either. I'm Graham Richardson in for Evan Solomon. Stay with us. We're back in just a moment. The Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. Welcome back. Glad you're with us. Uh, I am Graham Richardson in for Evan Solomon. Uh, We have been keeping an eye on, uh, obviously, on Atlantic Canada. And given what hit the United States right after Fiona, um, the, the devastation in parts of Nova Scotia um, and in parts of all of the Atlantic Can- Canadian provinces, has in some ways been overshadowed, but th- this will take months to recover from. Many are still without power after Fiona. Bill Mills is the mayor of Truro, Nova Scotia. Bill joins us on the line. Mayor Mills, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're busy. Uh, paint us a picture of things in your area in Truro. How are people doing, and what are your numbers in, term of, in terms of power loss now? Well, thank you very much, Graham. Well, we're, we're getting along uh, quite well. I think uh, this is day 12. Um, you know, we've made great progress. Um, we've had kind of uh, communication issues with uh, Nova Scotia Power, um, where their maps says power has been restored. There are certain pockets in the town that haven't been restored yet. Um, we had a meeting with uh, Nova Scotia Power this morning. Um, I did not attend, but uh, I got them to talk to my CAO and my engineer, and uh, basically we uh, shared with them about our concerns about uh, communications. And uh, a lot of problems stem from the fact when uh, you own a house and uh, your mast has been taken off because of uh, a fallen tree or debris or something of that nature. What happens there is that you have, you have the responsibility to 
call an electrician. Right. Uh, they come and reinstall, and then it has to be inspected by a, a power commission uh, employee. And then once it's inspected and approved, then uh, NSP is to come and they are to uh, uh, hook up the wires. What's been happening is that we've had the people ready uh, with uh, their mast uh, reattached and um, messages are getting uh, mixed up and so on. For example, there was a house on Wood Street here in Truro. My daughter lived in one house and the house below her, they both had their mask taken off. Uh, they both called an electrician. They both had it reattached. Nova Scotia Power showed up, attached uh, the house below my daughter's house, and then left. <laughs> right. And so for some reason or another, hers was not on the list, or somebody could have at least called and said, look, uh, we noticed the mask on this house uh, obviously hasn't been approved, and then fixed it. So these are the kind of things that are happening um, and as yep, mayor, and, as politicians, you hear about it right away, the frustrations, obviously, uh, and, and it is frustrating. In Ontario this spring, we had this massive derecho storm, same kind of problem where um, they, they would be restoring the bigger areas in, in a higher priority for obvious reasons. And then you'd have pockets where one tree was down on one wire and they couldn't get to it. Is, is that happening as well there? It, it, it seems to be um, in some areas. It's just a matter of a switch that's up by the transformer. Right. And, uh, if they if they would go up and down those streets, they could determine quite quickly uh, if that's the case, and they could throw the switch. Okay. Now I know that causes a few problems if there are if there are down power lines in the area, but uh, we have a ward system in town, ward one, two, and three. My feeling has been if uh, there were a number of power trucks, say two that were assigned to each ward, and they would go up and down the streets, um, that would uh, save a lot of confusion. So uh, I'm sure that was shared with officials from NSP uh, this morning. Yeah. And it, it, it's frustrating because they have a, they're engineers they're, you know, who plan this, and, and they have a way of doing things. And when there's a large outage and you have to deal with the actual public, it's very difficult to explain the why. And I've often mm-hmm. found sometimes the why doesn't make a lot of sense to people. Well, that, and that's just it. Uh, the people would like to at least, if they make a call, they'd like to get a human voice. Number two, if they have called once or maybe five times, maybe somebody could call them back and say, look, here's the situation. We hope to get you by tomorrow or the end of the day, these type of things. And that, that would alleviate a lot of the problems. Yeah. And the you're just getting is, nothing. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. You know, I'd say the other problem is our temperatures have gone down over the last two days yeah. uh, to below zero, our first frost. And so for people who have been out for 10, 11 days, uh, it gets to be quite difficult. Uh, you don't have to worry. They, a lot of them have generators, but uh, it's, it's a very uncomfortable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and just generally, power aside, how did Truro fare? We have some very significant damage. We have a... Uh, a uh, famous park in town, like a lot of cities in Canada, Victoria Park. And that park has been completely, well, close to completely decimated. Uh, Hurricane Juan took out one side of the park, and Fiona just took out the other side. Mm-hmm. We had a, a famous, uh, what we call, hemlock trail in our park. And those uh, trees were well over 100 years old, and they've been pretty well flattened. So mm-hmm. uh, we've got some major work there. Our problem is, uh, people are still going in the park to have a look-see, and uh, we've told them it's a very dangerous thing. And um, 
you know, a little gust of wind or something, trees leaning on other trees, they could fall over in a moment's notice. And you don't want to be in the way of one of those trees. So that's a big thing right now. It's going to take a long time. Our Colchester Legion Stadium has about $3.5 million worth of damage. The roof uh, was partially blown off. And, uh, of course, when it was, we had a lot of water damage and so on. So minor hockey is uh, probably going to take a big hit over the foreseeable future. Mm. Um, last question to you. I mean, people in that part of the country uh, with closeness to the ocean, they obviously understand and take the weather seriously. Um, what has the reaction been like to Fiona? I know I've spoken to people who have never seen that kind of power um, in their lifetime. Uh, what, what, what is your sense on the, the strength of the storm? Well, I, I've been mayor for 25 years, so I've been through a number of these storms. And uh, when we had uh, Hurricane Juan, uh, that was a, an incredible experience. And uh, the problem with that storm was it was a fast-moving storm, and it hit hard, really hard. And then the temperatures went down within 24 hours, and uh, that created a whole lot of other problems. This one was uh, among the same strength, but it was uh, slower moving, which caused more extensive damage. And then uh, um, just for example, a lot of campgrounds in our area, um, uh, we have a trailer up in New Brunswick in Capillet at Sandy Beach. And uh, basically we had a meeting up there and I think that's going to drastically change how campgrounds work. They're going to have to take their trailers out. At least it's been suggested every August, the end of August, move them to higher ground um, because uh, there was major flooding at that campground and uh, a lot of water damage and so on and so forth. So um, campgrounds aren't going to be able to function the way they used to because of the frequency of these storms that we're seeing uh, come up along the eastern seaboard. Well, we wish you the best, and uh, we all know Truro, and we hope uh, people in Truro are uh, back on their feet soon. I'm sure they will be. Bill Mills, Mayor of Truro, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Graham. Have a good day. All right, you too. Um, yeah, it's uh, just a, last week we spoke with somebody from Newfoundland. Um, just uh, They've never seen this kind of power, and they did mitigation efforts, if you were listening, like to um, to the property put in uh, stones and walls and, you know, mitigation efforts because they were so vulnerable because they're close to the ocean. It all ended up washed into the house itself, you know, and they've been there more than 100 years. So anyway, when we come back, our political panel on Quebec, on the Hockey Canada situation and the government's reaction to it. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. Stay with us. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. The War Room with the echoing. I just noticed that. Wow, Evan's got all the effects here. That's just great. Good to good to be here. Uh, we are joined by our War Room political panel. Uh, Tim Powers, the chairman of Summa Strategy. Tom Alcaro, CTV political analyst. And Zane Velji, um, a 
former strategist, uh, and he's a strategist and partner with Northweather and, of course, connected with uh, Nahid Nenshi, former Calgary mayor, and uh, Rachel Notley, who is very interesting times in Alberta. Welcome to you all. Thanks for being here. Hey, good to be with you, Graham. All right, Tom, let's start in Quebec. Um, This was predicted. I think I talked to you about it many, many weeks ago uh, that that uh, Legault was going to have a very good campaign, and he did with some hiccups. What does this mean for the provincial relationship with with Ottawa and with Justin Trudeau? I mean, this is an emboldened Legault, is it not? It's an emboldened Legault who was already bold enough to go after Legault in last year's election. So you can imagine what it's going to be like now. He's got to play a game because, of course, his he's never changed his his stripes, but he's changed his strategy. He gave an important interview before the 2018 campaign, and he said this, look, we've tried twice to separate in one grand evening. It hasn't worked, so I'm going to be doing three things. I'm going to be going after more powers on language, culture, and immigration, and he specifically circled the family reunification category of immigrants, something that belongs to Ottawa and not to Quebec. Quebec Mm. can so say in all of the economic side. That will be the first big fight Legault will bring to to, to Trudeau now. Trudeau is very clear and adamant that he will not hand that over to Quebec, but it's an arm wrestle that Legault wants to have with Trudeau. It's interesting because slowly but surely through laws that discriminate against religious minorities, including Muslim women in particular, that discriminate against the English-speaking community of Quebec and their right to control and manage school boards or to have equality of English and French before the courts, Trudeau is so terrified of Legault that he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. Normally, his, his, his attorney general, David Lametti, should be there front and center saying, we're referencing this, you know, we're sending it to the Supreme Court, we're going to test the legality of this. Instead, we find out that a young Muslim woman teaching on the Quebec side loses her teaching job because she's wearing a headscarf. So the, the same government that loves lecturing people on the importance of human rights is not doing the most basic thing, which is standing up for the Constitution and ensuring that everybody has the same rights in our country from coast to coast to coast. And Zane, other provinces, in particular in Alberta, in particular a certain someone who might win the leadership in Don't the next few days, <laughs> are, they're watching this very carefully. And they're not, they, they want what Quebec has, and maybe they're not going to enforce federal laws. Well, I mean, this has worked for a long time in Quebec, and now why not try it elsewhere, Graham? That's exactly the premise and through line for Danielle Smith here, right? She, for a long time, has ironically, and I'll say ironically, saying, why can't we be more like Quebec? You mean that place with uh, an economic future that doesn't look so great? You mean that place that is always on the outside looking in in many of our national conversations? Sure. Why can't we be more like that? Now, I, as much as I sarcastically deride her, you're right, Graham. She's more than likely going to win on Thursday. So there is a proof point here, if she wants to say it that way, to to her Uh, at least her rhetoric around the Sovereignty Act, around separation, around we need to be our own nation. We're not going to enforce gun laws. We're not going to follow the gun laws. Absolutely. And so there is an audience for that. What I'll warn Daniel Smith is the same warning I've given on this show multiple times. Albertans don't want that. I don't say that as a partisan progressive hack. I say that as someone that can read numbers, that can read polls, that can say the majority of Albertans have said no thank you to that. No thank you to a version of that. And so I, I think she she will become victorious by Thursday, 
But by Friday, she needs to really and truly understand what ails this province. Yeah. And it is not the fact that we are part of a larger confederation. When when Albertans I know get angry and frustrated with Ottawa, which is at a peak now, they talk about separation, but they are great Canadians and it, they don't go as far, That's... I would argue, as many sovereigntists in Quebec, even the far extremes uh on the let's say on the on the right wing in alberta they are still canadians and and they they're proud albertans i understand that but it, it's just not the same dynamic uh as what's happening in quebec i want to bring tim in. tim um w- what do you do if you're pierre polyev and you're faced with this because i don't think he's going to be condemning quebec either he sees growth around quebec city like your friend mr harper saw he's not gonna he's not gonna want to fight yeah. a newly powerful quebec premier on these issues and 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 that is where the power seems to have shifted at least for now well you could argue if you pick up uh the point on trudeau who has fought uh, ferociously uh let go with pillows great pillow fight there <laughs> and landed not a punch uh or a feather if you will that both pierre and the prime minister have a choice they're going to have to make soon are they going to speak to the bigger opportunity of the federation or get played by uh, two players in the provinces. Uh, And we're living in a time where, you know, Fed prof fighting, uh, as Zane has said in Alberta, I think this is generally true across the country, is not something people really want. Um, You know, does I I think Pierre will be watching for how Smith rolls out in her early days, because there's Mm -hmm. already a lesson there of how you can flame out. His name is Jason Kenney. Um, Jason came in with lots of fire and brimstone, albeit he rightly has called Daniel Smith's Alberta Sovereignty Act stupid. But but he was going to shake up the Federation, and he was going to play off this sentiment. And when he couldn't govern well, even though the Alberta economy has done reasonably well, it fell apart. So, yeah, Pierre has got to be fairly deft, but he might have to demonstrate that he has national leadership chops, because where does that matter? In Ontario. Where does he need to break? Breakthrough in Ontario, particularly yeah. in 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 and around uh, Toronto. Yeah, uh, Tom. Before we get to break, you know, other Canadians and I hear this all the time. Like, how is it that Quebec can talk about immigration levels? Uh, Quebec Premier in the middle of a campaign can do that. Um, they can bring in these controversial laws where someone, as you mentioned, a teacher in Chelsea loses her job for wearing hijab, and. Well, it's, we, collectively, as Canadians, people kind of shrug and say, that's Quebec. And any other province, in particular Alberta, tried to pull something like that, there would be a massive, massive pushback. Why Let not me take an, another example from the prairies. I sure. would give you the example of Manitoba, hmm. because Quebec and Manitoba have verbatim identical language obligations with regard to the use of French and English before the courts, confirmed several times by the Supreme Court of Canada, yes. going, going back years now. Quebec is removing that, and they purport to change, to have changed, to modify the British North America Act to legalize their perception that French is the only official language and so forth, and they're rolling back equality of French and English before the courts. Now, take your your strategy for analyzing this. Imagine that some future very right-wing Manitoba government simply contrived, you know, to to get votes, to start going after the French-speaking minority of Manitoba and said, we will no longer respect the equality of French and English before the courts, and we will no longer follow the rules of the Supreme Court with regard to adoption in both languages of legislation before our legislature. How many nanoseconds would it take for David Lametti, our Attorney General, to send that 
post-haste before the Supreme Court for a reference decision. And yet this, the exact same thing on the other foot has been taking place in Quebec, and it's been crickets. Not so I think that your, your approach in terms of analyzing this is exactly right. What would it take for them to, to react if the same thing was happening somewhere else? It wouldn't take much, but because it's Quebec, the English-speaking minority, tough luck, and the, the control and management of school boards... Legault attacked that as well. For now, you know, the whole the whole thing's being held together with bailing wire, but there's going to have to be a decision. Again, this is something that should have been shot off to the Supreme Court immediately, but they won't do it. Huh. We're going to take a break. We've got uh, our political panel here, and we're going to talk about Hockey Canada. <clears throat> and what I felt was like, just like lightning bolts at a time when I didn't expect it yesterday at the, uh, at the committee. And oh my goodness, something rare. All the parties agree in terms of their questioning. <laughs> that that should have been the lead yesterday. All politicians on all sides agree that Hockey Canada is doing a terrible job, and they're all asking the same questions. We'll talk about that with Zane Velji, Tom Mulcair, and Tim Powers on the political panel right here on the Evan Solomon Show. I'm Graham Richardson. Stay with us. We're back in just a moment. It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. We're with our War Room political panel, uh, Zane Velji, Tom Mulcair, and Tim Powers. This is Hockey Canada yesterday on Parliament Hill. Our board, frankly, does not share the view that senior leadership should be replaced on the basis of what we consider to be substantial misinformation and an unduly cynical attacks. You know, I appreciate that others disagree with us, but our positions are based on the information that we have and an understanding that Hockey Canada has an excellent reputation. Suggesting that toxic behavior is somehow a specific hockey problem or to scapegoat hockey as a centerpiece for toxic culture is, in my opinion, counterproductive to finding solutions and risks overlooking the change that needs to be made more broadly to prevent and address toxic behavior, particularly against women. Tim Powers, what did you make of the tone yesterday? I was really struck by it. Well, let me do a little disclaimer. Was the head of a national sports organization for five years. Know a lot of the Hockey Canada people. Have uh, worked with some of them. I don't know Andrea, who we was speaking there. The, the current Andrea Skinner. Yep, fair enough. Yeah, I've had a little bit of correspondence with her before. Uh, no Scott Smith, the president. Uh, but boy, oh boy, I suspect all of the three of us, and you may agree too, if we were giving them advice today, Graham, the advice would be probably some of you should sit down and you shouldn't take on the mm-hmm. posture you took yesterday. Mm-hmm. I mean, to blame everybody else um, and to say, look, our, you know, you don't understand our problems, our, our societal problems was not mm-hmm. the right call. It was stupid, in fact, and I'm not making that a personal attack on any one person, but the strategy was stupid. The other thing I'd say, Graham, is what what, what I found more perplexing, and uh, it was either a a clear threat or a very targeted threat, was um, the comments uh, Andrew Skinner made concerning, well, if we all resigned, the lights would go off tomorrow. That was was where I was going. Yeah, so I, I can tell you today, and Graham, you've been in this situation, I'm I coach my son's B hockey team and three of us, we have a scrimmage with the other B hockey teams today. We're going about it. Anyway, the lights aren't going off for us, but 
here's what I know about national sports organizations. So what she might have been saying and sending a message, which clearly Quebec said, we don't buy it, is if we decide to disband, you families and players won't be insured. And you know enough about sports mm. to know that you got to have the insurance to play. And if she was saying that, that's a pretty bold threat. It is a threat. Uh, and I, was, I, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I just, I wanted to bring Zane in because, and then we'll talk to Tom as well, but it just seemed like combative. Um, uh, and, and regardless, like, even if there's some truth there that it's, it's not exclusively mm. hockey. Well, you know, if any sport was investigating an alleged gang sexual assault yeah, exactly. that they, that they paid off quietly with registration fees from mm. parents, those are truths. You know, there's got to be some accountability for the public and for hockey parents, doesn't there? Apparently not. Absolutely. Well, I mean, this is just the thing is that there this is not just following good or bad comms advice. There is massive ramifications to these words because it can negate years of trauma, of abuse, of poor behavior, of illegal behavior, perhaps. You know, looking at Tim's point, I'm thinking about this because, Tim, they have procured sound communications advice. And to me, the only thing I can conclude, and I'm curious if you guys agree, is that the advice maybe given to them was to say, this is your last gasp. So fight. Because if to to your point, to your introgram, how many times have we seen all political parties edging to get into the committee meeting so they can take a shot at an organization? Last time was probably we and even then the liberals were on the defensive there. This is different. And so there could be a last gasp mentality, which is to say, screw it. We're (laughs) blaming everyone that isn't us. We're throwing it all against the wall. Gaslighting. Sure. Let's do that. Slinging mud. Yup. Let's do that. Uh, Trying to make you look like you're the one that's actually out of touch. Let's do that. Because to me, I think they know to that last point around the, uh, the inside voice being said outside that if we leave, this thing is done. I think they know that if they leave, Hockey Canada Canada's done. And I think this is institutional um, in that sense of trying to support and ensure that the institution stays alive, regardless of the tactics that they have to use. I could be wrong, but maybe that was the advice given. Yeah, and somewhere. you know, Tom, like, I, I agree that, you know, like, I, I appreciate they're professionals and they do lots of work, but, you know, hockey is, har- is not a hard sell in this country. No. Picking, well te- said. I could pick Team Canada <laughs> for the next Olympics, and I don't know. An, uh, Patricia Bull, fantasy sports. But Patricia Bull, my co-anchor, knows more about sports than I do, and I could actually pick Team Canada. My point being, I mean, it's raining hockey players, and everybody's already bought in. Have you ever seen this level of of of? Uh, I don't know, just completely missing the boat where the public is. I think. It's an unbelievable situation. I wanted to go straight to the same point that Tim had raised. How can you possibly, if you know anything about hockey in the country, how could Attorney Skinner sit there and say, without us, the lights don't go on in arenas? It's the provincial federations that take care of the arenas, unless, as Tim suggests, it was some looping reference to the inability to find insurance, in which case this is beyond the problems that we've just thought of and talked about and been seeing with regard to sexual uh, abuse and sexual assault, 
this is a completely different category. I mean, this is a group of people who are intent on being lemmings and getting to the edge and jumping off, but they're going to try to bring as many other people as they can with them. There's another part here that we don't talk about enough, it seems to me. I've I've been in around governments and politics and senior administration because I was a senior bureaucrat before going into politics Mm -hmm. for long enough to know that it's extremely rare for a minister and a whole government not to get their way. So in terms of the planning and execution of how they're going to deal with this serious problem, it's been a complete and total fail on the part of this particular federal government as well. You have to know where you are, who the players are in every sense, and and how to deal with it. Instead, we've got something calling itself Hockey Canada that we're told is now going to be hiring a former Supreme Court judge paying several thousand dollars per hour for a report that they control and they get to deal with. Mm. It's not a, a federal government thing. It's not an independent commission. It's their request for something on themselves. They, they not, they're not able to have any sponsors right now because everybody's walked away from them, given the current context. And yet they were saying yesterday, no, the, the sponsors are going to come running back once everybody realizes that you're all wrong. And we've been just fine because here's the mark that I give you on your report card. She actually said that Andrea Skinner yesterday said that Hockey Canada deserves an A for their handling of all yeah. of these issues. And, and I, it, I just at that point, it was a mic drop. It was just like, OK, yeah. we're, we're into cloud cuckoo land here. And we're I take something your, that nobody's ever seen before. And I take your point on the PMO <clears> and on government. Mayors don't lose votes. Like if you're putting it to a vote, you 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 know you're going to get it. Similarly, when the cabinet and the prime minister is saying bad things about Hockey Canada and there needs to be change and there's no change, that's not good on government. Um, very quickly, Tim, last word on this, and we're going to talk to Rick uh, Westhead mm-hmm. right after the break, who uh, broke many parts of this story for TSN. Um, if you're Trudeau, Tim Powers, where do you go on this? Can you go anywhere? Well, you've done what you can do. You pull. You, you could move to disband them. Uh, it would depend on what their constitution says and the role the federal government has in that. They've taken the hard step of pulling out money, but Hockey Canada is the one NSO where the federal government money is is not as significant and influential as it is in every other NSO. So maybe they move to disband them. There would be constitutions that constitute all of these organizations where the federal government designates an organization as a national sports organization. That might be their next move. Zane Velji, Tom Mulcair, and Tim Powers, always great to talk to all of you. Thanks so much for this. Great Thank to be you. with you, Graham. All Thanks, right. Graham. Be well. You too. Have a good day. We're going to watch in, uh, actually in, uh, in Alberta on Thursday, Danielle Smith. Uh, somebody said I heard the other day <laughs> there's going to be as much suspense there as there was for Pierre Polyev <laughs> in the leadership for the Conservatives. Uh, we'll see if that comes true. Uh, lots of implications, implications for the right in Alberta and lots of implications for the Federation for the federal government, and also for Rachel Notley, which we didn't get a chance to talk about. Um, Where does she stand in the NDP, particularly in the cities of Alberta? We're going to watch that on Thursday. Um, And uh, Alberta, you know, don't paint it with one brush. Uh, You go to the inner inner parts of uh, Edmonton and some of the suburbs, uh, very progressive parts of uh, even parts of Calgary different than who Danielle Smith has been playing to, but it's likely she's going to win leadership. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. After the news, we will speak with Rick Westhead. Stay with us. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
Our board, frankly, does not share the view that senior leadership should be replaced on the basis of what we consider to be substantial misinformation and an unduly cynical attacks. You know, I appreciate that others disagree with us, but our positions are based on the information that we have and an understanding that Hockey Canada has an excellent reputation. Suggesting that toxic behavior is somehow a specific hockey problem or to scapegoat hockey as a centerpiece for toxic culture is, in my opinion, counterproductive to finding solutions and risks overlooking the change that needs to be made more broadly to prevent and address toxic behavior, particularly against women. Prime Minister said those comments from Andrew Skinner, the um, interim chair of Hockey Canada, those comments boggled his mind, essentially. Um, a very uh, aggressive defense of Hockey Canada yesterday and the executives and the board saying that all sorts of things uh, about how they find themselves in this position. Um, no stranger to this story, of course, broke a lot of it. Rick Westhead, TSN senior correspondent, joins us on the line. Hi, Rick. Hi. What'd you make of that yesterday? Uh, it really took me back. Uh, I was surprised by some of the things that I'd heard. Uh, I was expecting that this was going to be, you know, sort of a more congenial, friendly, even um, hearing. And it was pretty clear very near the start that that was not going to happen. Mm. Uh, you know, at one point, at one point, Michael Brindamore, the former chair of, of Hockey Canada, who was testifying, was refusing to answer direct yes or no questions. And uh, one of the members of Parliament had to ask the committee chair to direct Brindamore to answer the question. You know, we saw Member of Parliament Rachel Thomas yelling at uh, Andrea Skinner, you know, very emotional, uh, asking how it's possible with the status quo leading Hockey Canada, uh, whether something magical was going to happen to come in and, you know, affect this organizational uh, change mm. and how that would happen with the same people in place who've been there who've had oversight as, you know, many of the things that we're learning about now took place. If you were on that panel as an MP, I know it's a different role as a journalist, but it, what are your questions that you would have for them? I'm sure you've got 50, but if you had to pick a couple, like what do you most want to know from them? Yeah, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I would be, a couple of the, the basics. Uh, we've heard uh, a lot about, you know, how Hockey Canada has handled the allegations around uh, a 2018 alleged sexual assault in London, Ontario. Uh, but in June, Scott Smith testified that there are several other active investigations. I'd love to know who's investigating those. He said that over the last five or six years that one or two new complaints of sexual misconduct come into the national organization every year. Well, what's happened to those complaints? Mm -hmm. Who investigated those? Did they go to an independent third party? Or did Hockey Canada's own staff decide that they weren't credible? Did they lead to civil settlements? What happened? And, and what about complaints that may have been filed at provincial branches across Canada historically? You know, the Ontario Hockey Federation, Hockey Manitoba, Hockey BC. Are there also complaints that are being filed with those provincial branches that we have not, you know, touched yet. And I guess finally, I'd love to know why they're not more transparent. Yeah. Hockey Canada has made the case that it's not getting a fair deal in the media. And yet 
I've been asking questions of this organization for years about this lack of transparency. And I'll give, you know, your listeners one small example. Best practices in this space to keep people safe is that federations now, many of them, will make public the names of people who are sanctioned and cannot participate in sports. So you'll see, for instance, uh, Gymnastics Canada, Swimming Canada, Figure Skating Canada, uh, they have public lists of people who have been suspended. In some cases, like with Athletics Canada, they will even post on their website uh, the reports that have led up to these suspensions. So when they investigate a coach or an athlete or whomever uh, and they're suspended, you can go on Athletics Canada's website and see the investigative findings. Right. Which leads us to, historically, how many hockey people coaches, administrators, whoever, how many people have been sanctioned? Who is not allowed to be part of that sport right now? And the answer is it's none of your business. Hockey Canada does not make this information public. The most powerful sports organization in the country with massive numbers of participants every year and in, in, you know, advising the public of that is not considered by Hockey Canada to be in the public interest. And meantime, they do have these, you know, like if you want to be a coach, you've got to jump through X, Y, and Z, make sure you're certified here and there, just on a minor hockey team or something. Yet something as serious as what we're talking about, it's, it's you've had to pull teeth to try to get basic information on it. That's true. And, and, and what you're talking about, the different modules that coaches and players, you know, people connected with the game have to take now, uh, this is a good thing. This is progress. Sure. Of course. And, uh, you know, we, we, we need to use, uh, we need to be educated on using proper language and remind coaches and children, you know, or adult participants, whoever it is, uh, about respecting each other. Man, we, we live, it feels like in, right now, people are just on edge. You can't drive down the highway, uh, you know, wondering, well, who's going to say what to you if, if there's some sort of a, you know, he or she cut me off moment, right? Mm-hmm. And so with all these tensions on edge, uh, these tensions, it's, it's good that, that Hockey Canada and other organizations are, are doing these modules so to make sure that people remember to respect each other. Because ultimately, sports is, sports is awesome. Sports is fun. And, you know, just personally, I have people say, well, how do you feel covering stories like this? Is it really is it really hard? Do you have people say, oh, you're, you're trying to ruin hockey? And the truth is, I think that this is going to make hockey better. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that this kind of sunshine on this topic is important. And for too long, we didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't talk about Survivors who've come to me in recent months will say, I just finally feel like someone is actually going to listen to me. And, you know, help me find justice, whatever that looks like, or accountability, whatever whatever that looks like. And it's about time. Can I just quickly, before I go, get back to 2018, and do you have any sense what the London police are re-looking at? And, like, that seems to me to be basically just, like, they realize as this thing is blowing up through your work and others, they look really bad by just kind of moving on from it without a thorough invest, do we have, or I don't know, do we have any sense that their new investigation is in some ways different than the previous one? No, we don't. Um, the truth is, they're keeping their the, the police as they should do are keeping you know their cards close to their vest. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I've talked with several hockey player agents whose clients uh, were on that World Juniors team in 2018 who've gone through police and interviews and investigate in, as part of this investigation. Uh, and and the, the answer is we, we just don't know. Uh, it's interesting that they reopened the investigation and, you know, it, it's led a lot of people to speculate on where that's going to go. I don't know. I, I just, I, I hope that we can have faith that they're going to do it right, that they're going to take their time, be diligent, go and meet in person all these players, not just the ones who are in London at the tournament and uh, at the Hockey Canada Foundation event in June 2018 where this alleged assault, uh, you know, where this incident took place uh, and and really get to the bottom of it. Rick Westcott, always uh, good to have you on. Thanks so much for this. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. All right, that's TSN. Uh, Rick Westhead, who has uh, in many ways led the coverage on uh, this extraordinary story about Hockey Canada. Uh, When we come back, I want to take your uh, texts and calls about your cars and whether they've been stolen. We're getting a lot of this locally in the Ottawa area, but text is at 71010. I want to hear your stories about which cars um, and how you get through it all, like insurance, police, do you get a rental? How long do you get the rental? Are rentals available? Text us at 71010. We'll read some of your responses when the Evan Solomon Show returns. The Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Thanks for all your texts today. Uh, Earlier in the program, we were just talking about car theft and the response locally here in Ottawa to another one of our shows. And now, I mean, it's just everywhere. So keep them coming, 71010. I just want to read a few of them because it is really an epidemic. Uh, We had... uh, uh, Sergeant Kerry Schmidt on from the OPP talking about the little things you can do to to protect yourselves. But he is seeing, uh, all police are seeing an extraordinary number of people um, have their cars uh, taken. Um, you put the club on the steering wheel. They literally cut the steering wheel in 10 seconds to remove it. They part the car. Uh, they put the car out most times so they don't care if the string wheel has a slice in it. Okay. they That, that says the club doesn't actually help. Here's another text. They take a picture of your VIN number and go to their car, do something on a laptop, and then they have access to your car. I'm not sure if it's that simple, but yes, I understand. Like it's, it's, they can, they can um, duplicate. Uh, it looks like duplicate fobs and things like that to get in. Good afternoon, Graham. It's quite simple. You wire in an aftermarket starter kill switch, manual, of course. It's cheap and easy to do, not to mention very effective. Ah, Okay. So you can do aftermarket um, that requires a key to turn the car. Uh, You wire in an aftermarket starter kill switch. Hmm. Uh, My neighbor has the club, like you said. The key is to make sure your car is not as easy as the next one. I cleaned out my garage last week so we can park inside now. That's one of the ones that um, Sergeant Schmidt suggested you do. The hub is Montreal. They ship over 90% of stolen cars by the port of Montreal. I've heard that before. I'm not sure about the 90%, but I hear you. 
Here's a story. Had my Honda Accord stolen from my driveway some years ago, 26,000 K on it. A week later, I received my insurance card and registration in the mail from a lady from a part of Quebec who picked it up by the side of the road. Needless to say, the car was being taken by back roads to Montreal. It was relatively new to try to avoid detection and shipped overseas by container. Lost thousands of dollars as insurance only pays the value of car two years old through loss of value. In my son's neighborhood in Orleans, this is in the east end of of Ottawa, a person's brand new car with 132 kilometers, 132 kilometers on it was taken overnight. No rental vehicles are available. My daughter-in-law's co-worker had her Jeep stolen from her driveway. A school bus company had eight catalytic converters cut right off the buses. Someone is making money with that. That's from Louise in the Ottawa area. Like, it is just everywhere. Um, and the the hard part is there's not not much you can do about it. Why don't car manufacturers build them with a thumb recognition? Well, that might be coming. I worked as a security uh, guard at Yorkdale. That's a mall in Toronto. We had cars stolen on a daily basis from the lot. During my experience, Honda CRVs um, and some luxury cars were prime targets. The suspects would drive around broad daylight and eventually pick a car, then use their tech, break into them, and steal them. In the Ottawa area, we have had dozens of Honda CRVs targeted, um, like way more than normal. And a few months ago, a couple of years ago, it was high-end Lexus that was uh, on the way on the on the list in terms of uh, getting lots stolen. So what do you do about it, though? I mean, it must be just really disconcerting. Obviously, you come out your driveway and they're gone. The car is gone. I I even had a friend who had um, motion sensor camera out front, and at like three forty eight in the morning, his truck was there, and at four oh one, the truck was gone. Like it does a you know a snapshot or whatever. Um, now. Some people I know, it's not a smart thing to do. Some people I do know will have two key fobs or whatever, and they'll leave the key fob in the car and it's slaved to their phone so that they walk to their phone and their phone, I think, unlocks the car and they leave the fob inside the car. I would imagine cops are saying, don't do that, especially in this environment. How about parking your car in the garage for which it was intended. All these people in the suburbs who lose a vehicle to driveway theft have a garage. This is the easiest solution. Don't buy a push-button start vehicle. Problem solved from Mike. Okay. Well, most of the new ones are push-button, right? Like, it's very... Maybe, you know what? Maybe the maybe they just go back and they, this is too much automation and car companies come out with, um, you know, only key-turned cars and we just put up with the... the like, I don't personally, I don't care about the, I don't really care about the push button, but then I guess I do care. I do care about, I really like keyless entry. I find keyless entry very, very convenient. I don't remember the last time I keyed to get into a car, but maybe that's, uh, that was, um, maybe that's the way we're going. Okay. Uh, one, one more story here before we go. Uh, we just got this in. Um, this is, it looks like from Windsor. This is just a, listen to this. Our 2020 Lexus SUV was taken out of a hotel parking lot, parked under a light in front on Winston Churchill Boulevard, June 4th. Police and insurance notified, we still don't have our vehicle. It was found during a police sting in Montreal. 
It was to be released July 10th. We were told $1,500 in damage. Our insurance company adjuster has done nothing to help us. We've notified an ombudsman and he hit us. Uh, he found us a new adjuster. Our car was ready to be released July 11th. It took 49 days to come to Windsor. Once in Windsor, we found $20,000 in damage to the electric system. We still have no vehicle, nor are we able to rent any more under our insurance coverage. We're now paying out of pocket. It has been a nightmare. So let me, let me just recap here. It's stolen, and they get the car back through a police sting in Montreal. Just $1,500 in damage. They're fighting with the insurance company. They've run out their rental. Because rental, by the way, rental cars for your insurance only has a certain amount of days. Way lower than you might think. It took 49 days to get back to Windsor. Once in Windsor, 20 grand in damage to the electrical system. And that's, I know, not, a, not a, an exaggeration. Those electrical systems now are so intricate. If one thing goes or if there's any damage, they gut the whole thing. So no car, can't rent, insurance coverage, done, no help. Wow. I, uh... Oh, here's a good idea. Put low jack on the car, Graham. I don't know what that is. Does anybody know what low jack is? Oh, is, is it a, um, uh, a tracking system or whatever? Leave an air tag in the car, track it, and voila. I guess so, unless, you know... Organized criminals are taking your car to Montreal and you can't really, well, I guess you could tell the cops where it is. You could tell the cops where it is. Um, all Honda brands are easy targets. They have the most customers overseas. Get an electric car, no catalytic converters. Okay. Um, there are some tips, but you know, we converted part of our garage into storage. So we have we're, lots of bikes and everything in there and we don't have room for a car. So our car is out in the driveway. And lots of people do that. Uh, in some parts of my neighborhood, they have just uh, car parks. They don't have a garage and they have a shed in the back. So if you have a garage and you've got room, um, you can, you can, um, oh, Lojack, sorry. Lojack is a stolen vehicle recovery uh, connected to the car system. It utilizes GPS. Thank you for that. That's from Sam. Thank you. I'm Graham Richardson. Been great to be here. Evan Solomon back tomorrow. Thanks for being here.